Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Modern Horse Training and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Gavalia. And this week, our special guest is going to be Anita Snay. That's how we should be starting because this is indeed going to be the case that Anita is going to be joining us for an in-depth conversation about the Feldenkrais work. And we got together, Dominique, Anita, and I got together a couple days ago and had just a lovely afternoon together. We had a long introduction in which Anita talked about the Feldenkrais work, and then she shared an ATM, and awareness through movement lesson with us, and then we talked some more. Great, great afternoon. The problem was that I think Anita and I got a little too far ahead of where many of you are in terms of exploring and understanding the body work, and it's easy to do. So as I was listening to Anita's introduction, I thought, all right, we need to have a different kind of introduction to what we're going to be doing and why we're doing it. And that's where we're going to begin. So you're going to be listening just to me, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson, a personal history lesson, so don't groan. You think, oh, history, how boring. No, no, it'll be interesting. And I want to go back to the mid-1980s and to two very influential innovators who really changed the horse world dramatically. And the first of those innovators was Sally Swift, who developed centered riding. Centered riding is still very much an important influence in the horse world. And it was even more so when Sally first introduced it, because it was so different from how many, many, many of us were taught to ride. Now, I definitely do not want to paint all riding instruction with the same brush. I know that there are always creative, innovative, kind people out there who are teaching riding, who are bringing young riders on and bringing them on in a way that is very supportive of the rider and also very supportive of the horse. But there is also a very definite, strong influence in the horse world that goes back to cavalry training, that goes back to sort of the make it happen, just get on and ride, and if you fall off, get back on the horse, that kind of culture. And that was definitely, I would say, the norm for my area. So a lot of what I am reporting on was what I would have experienced as a young rider, learning, visiting the different riding stables in my area, and going to the local shows, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, being exposed to the horse community that was in my area. But what I know from giving clinics and talking to people from different regions of the country is this experience is not that unusual. And when I talk about it, I see a lot of people nodding their heads and saying, yes, that was uh, our experience as well. So what, what am I talking about? 
that the training was really very much developed out of cavalry training. You know, get riders up on the horses, get them riding quickly. You tell the riders to put their heels down, sit up, look straight, straight ahead. And if your horse doesn't go, you just bat him with your, your crop and kick him harder and make him make him do it. And so it was, it, that was pretty much how riding instruction went. And then into that mix came Sally Swift with her centered riding. And Sally was a very different kind of horse person. First of all, she was born with a severe, severe scoliosis of the spine. And she spent much of her youth in a body brace, in a body cast, to try and stabilize her spine. And in trying to find ways of being more comfortable, of being able to function, of being able to stay walking, ambulatory, Sally stumbled across the Alexander Technique. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail in terms of what this is, but we'll just consider it a form of body work, a form of body awareness, that my understanding of the Alexander uh, Technique, Alexander was the developer of it, he was an Australian, and he was an orator. He started to lose his voice. And if he lost his voice, he would lose his profession. So he studied how he carried himself. He looked at his posture. He looked at how he carried his head on his torso and, and how he aligned his spine. And in exploring how he carried himself, he was able to resolve the issues that he had projecting out, and he saved his voice, and he saved his career, and he developed what was known as the Alexander Technique. And it's been used by actors and dancers, and definitely by riders. And for Sally, the Alexander work really helped her to become free of the body brace. So, I know many of you are familiar with centered riding, and basically what centered riding did is it introduced the horse community to the Alexander work. And it also, Sally also introduced the use of visualizations to help us learn how to relax and connect with the horses. So she used, in a sense, she was using the Ericksonian hypnosis where you enter a, an altered state, and that allows you to let go of some of the, the fear, the tension, the holding patterns that keep you from being an effective rider. And so a, a centered riding lesson would be full of visualizations. You know, you would, some of the expressions of center and grow, and you're going to feel as your, as your spine lengthens, like as though you have little sponges between your vertebrae that are filling up with water so your, your spine can expand. And when you give it the pole, you're, there's this little nod of your head. And if you look at the skeleton, if you look at a skeleton as the skull, you get that little nod. And you'll see a little opening at the between just under the base of the skull. And Sally would call that opening blue sky at the back of the neck. And some of these are, they're just wonderful images. 
and some of them relate, people can relate to, and for others it just, I'm doing what? <laughs> I'm doing what with the back of my neck? So the an image that may work for one person just doesn't connect with another, but it's the idea of using this imagery to help riders rather than barking commands at them saying, you know, all trot, put your shoulders back, put your shoulders up, sit up straighter. You know, and what you, what you end up with are these ramrod stiff riders. And then one of the most devastating things is when you're told to put your heels down, put your heels down. Oh, all the times that I've heard riders being told, put your heel down. And what Sally showed us was, you know, when you, when you jam your heel down, when you force your heel down, you end up tightening your calf, you end up tightening your knees, your hips, and you get these really stiff riders who just bounce all over the place when they're trying to ride. It's the, it, it really works against you. And yes, the heel can, can go down, but it's going to release down, not be forced down. And there's a huge difference. And I was really fortunate to be able to watch Sally quite frequently because Sally was very good friends with one of my clients. Sally had been her camp counselor when they were younger and they had stayed in touch through the decades. And so when Sally's uh, started teaching the centered riding and invited her to come to this area and Sally gave frequent, frequent workshops and clinics in this area and so I got to watch a great many of the lessons that Sally gave and I got to watch her develop the ideas that went into her book, Centered Riding. So I was very, very fortunate. And the influence, again, that she had on the horse world, we're all benefiting from it because she really did change the way riding instruction was given. She helped dramatically. She helped us move away from that barking of commands, that sort of uh, feeling as though you're in the cavalry and you're, you know, you're only six years old and somebody's yelling at you. Sally never yelled at anybody. Um, she was such a lovely, nice, kind lady. So that was one of the major influences. And before, before we move away from, from Sally, I'll just share a couple of things. It was from Sally that I learned where I put my foot on the stirrup. So as a hunter jumper rider, young hunter jumper rider, I was told that you want to just put your toes on the uh, stirrup bar. And Sally came along and said, oh, no, 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 no. You want to put the stirrup bar over what she referred to as the bubbling spring, which is a term that she borrowed from some of the martial arts. But what she was really saying is you want to put your stirrup bar over the balance point of your foot. And you can demonstrate why this is an advantage. So if I put a lead rope on the ground and, and hold the two ends of the lead rope so it forms sort of the belly of the rope and I can put my foot on the, the lead rope that's resting on the ground. And if I put my toes right on the lead rope and I pull up, it'll be very easy for my foot to scoop forward. 
No, it's very hard to prevent it, actually. And just my foot will naturally, as I pull up, my foot will swing forward. And this happens when we ride. We see so many riders who really struggle to keep their foot underneath them. And they're fighting against. Their foot wants to, to scoop forward, and they're being told to put their foot back. And you get into this sort of trying to force your foot to stay underneath you. But all the while, you've got your toes right on the edge of the stirrup bar. And so you're working against what you're trying to achieve. But if you just move the stirrup bar back, so you're over the balance point of the foot, and the balance point of the foot is between the first and second digit and just behind behind those. So it's behind the, the balls of your feet, behind the, the knuckle joints. And if you put the stirrup bar there and you pull up, what you'll feel is that your foot stays underneath you and your your knee can bend. You've got shock absorbers. Your joints can bend. And so now instead of being unbalanced with your foot sliding out in front of you and then bracing against that, now you can relax and let go and, and allow those shock absorbers. And lo and behold, your heel can relax down. And it's, it's lovely. So just simple things like that where you can demonstrate, you can do an A-B reversal, and you can say, do it this way, not do it that way, and see the result. And one of the clinics that I attended way back when, in the mid-1980s, was given by a farrier, Tony Gonzalez. He was from Hawaii. And Tony was looking at how unbalanced and unlevel horses are. That if you look from above down a, a horse's top line. So you imagine that you're standing up on a stepladder. So you're above the horse and you're looking from his tail towards his head. Often what you will see is that his hips are not even, and particularly you'll see that his shoulders are not even. You might see one shoulder is ahead of the other. You'll see one shoulder looks very slab-like and the other's pushes out and and so they're completely different shapes. And so Tony was looking at all of these asymmetries. And he was looking at how one shoulder would be dramatically higher than the other. And he was uh, trying to correct that by raising one foot higher than another when he trimmed them. It was, it was an interesting approach. But one of the things that, that Tony did is... At this particular clinic, Sally was attending as his guest. And at one point, Sally was a tiny little individual, and she was not sure how old she would have been, but certainly in the senior citizen age bracket. And Tony, at one point, Tony wanted her to see this, this, these asymmetries in the horse. And so he picked Sally up and held her so that she could look down the horse's spine. And <clears throat> for Sally, it was just a, a huge, huge aha to see all of these asymmetries in the horse. And at that time, at least in my area, if you went to the big hunter-jumper barns, you brought your, often riders would bring their own saddle. They would bring a saddle that fit them. And whatever horse they happened to be riding, that saddle would go on 
the horse they were riding that day. So it was fit the saddle to the rider and never mind the poor horse. And furthermore, the saddle was put up on the horse's withers because often the saddle was going to slide back. So you, you know, you wanted to put it right up on the horse's withers. And what Tony showed us was how much this was really restricting how a horse could move. So he took the saddles and he'd, he'd have people put the saddle on as they would normally put it on and they put it up on top of the horse's withers and tighten the girth and we'd walk the horse away and we'd watch how the horse was walking. We'd watch how the horse was trotting. And then we'd bring the horse back and Tony would take the saddle and slide it back. And there's like, it's referred to as the locking in point. So when you slide a saddle back, there's a point where it just sort of slides in behind the withers. And that's where it wants to stay. So that's where you allow that saddle to be. And then you put the girth on and you walk the horse away. And lo and behold, the horse is walking differently because the saddle isn't sitting on top of his shoulders, squeezing his shoulders in so he can't move. And then he also was looking at if you've got these huge asymmetries in the shoulders, where one shoulder is ahead of the other and so on, that these saddles that are not designed to fit a particular horse, that the saddle is, is really rubbing the shoulders and creating a great deal of pain. Where now where there's so much effort made to fit the saddles to the horses. And people go to great lengths to get saddles that fit the individual horse. It just seems as though, you know, could it really be not all that long ago that it was thought, you know, every saddle in the barn basically could, could be used on any of the horses. And that has changed. That has changed dramatically. So there were a lot of really interesting people who were innovators and creators in that time frame. Another innovator and creator in that time frame was Linda Tellington Jones. And Linda was the founder of TEAM, the Tellington Jones Equine Awareness Method. And I was, again, very privileged to be able to learn directly from Linda. I spent a lot of time learning from Linda and was very much was very much influenced by her work. And Linda had grown up around horses. She married Wentworth Tellington and he was a graduate of the last cavalry school. So very much a cavalry influence there. And together they formed a school out on out in California. And then, long story made short, Linda burned out. And as you know, this is sort of how she tells told the story. She just burned out. They sold the school, sold all their school horses, and she went traveling. And one of the places that she traveled to was Israel, and she studied with Moshe Feldenkrais. He was developing his work not for horses, but for people. But it was from her experience with Feldenkrais that Linda developed the teamwork, the Tellington Jones Equine Awareness Method. And so Sally introduced the horse world to the Alexander work. Linda 
introduced the horse world to the Feldenkrais work. The Feldenkrais work and the Alexander training, I've always thought of them as, as sort of close cousins. If you can relate and understand the Alexander work, it makes it easier to shift and understand the Feldenkrais work, I think. So the Feldenkrais work, Moshe Feldenkrais, some of the principles that Linda brought into the teamwork was that through non-habitual movement, the nervous system can learn and make changes within a single lesson, which is a pretty astounding statement to make. And that where there is fear, where there is pain, that learning will not take place. So when we move in a way that causes discomfort, that causes pain, that causes fear, we are interrupting the changes, the, the learning that potentially could be taking place. And so Linda was looking at these non-habitual movements. We're moving out of patterns that are deeply ingrained, that are very familiar, and we're shifting to ways of moving that we're not so familiar with. Sort of like we're surprising the nervous system. We're, we're making it wake up and pay attention because we're doing something that's a little bit different. And that part made sense to me. And also that we're moving very slowly. So the movement, when you, when you move really fast, you don't have to pay attention. And fast movement can hide a lot of imperfections, a lot of bobbles. But when you slow something down, you start to see what it is that you're actually doing. And you start to see where are the gaps that when you go fast, you, you're sort of cover up and you, you speed over and they're behind you before you've really had a chance to notice. When you slow down, you have more of an opportunity to notice everything. You know, think about what it's like to go for a drive in a car you know, where you're zipping along at 65 miles per hour or whatever the speed limit is versus you're walking down the same stretch of road, you're walking. And it's a completely different world that you notice. So when we slow things down, we are exposing ourselves to a completely new world, a completely new way of moving. And so all of that made sense to me as well. And the teamwork was of enormous interest to me because Peregrine's mother had neurological damage. And at that time, the veterinary world had nothing to offer. So I was on my own trying to deal with a horse who could barely stand up. And the one thing that just made this huge, huge, huge difference for her was the teamwork. Now, I couldn't tell you why it made such a huge difference. What is there about taking your hand and doing these tiny little circles? You know, you're, you put your hand, your fingertips on your horse's shoulder or back, or really, it doesn't matter. You're not, you're not picking out acupuncture points. You're just Maybe you start at the horse's shoulder and your fingertips are there and you're at the heel of your hand 
is also resting on the horse and you move your hand in a circle. So you start down at uh, the bottom of the clock and you move your fingertips up towards 12 and you come down past three. And then as you get back towards six, you just softly bring your hand away and you put your hand down somewhere else and you do another of these circles. And the first time I did that with uh, Peregrine's mother, her world changed, completely transformed. She had been this really grumpy, stay away from me. I hurt, my body hurts, I don't want you anywhere near me. I'm gonna pin my ears, I'm gonna swish my tail, I'm gonna threaten that I will, you know, do something more aggressive if you try and touch me anywhere. It's like her whole body must have felt just electrified to her. And after I did this just one session, she just melted. And she was able to show me for the first time ever, it's not my whole body that hurts. It's this area that bothers me. It's like, oh, she opened a door and let me walk in. So I was hooked. <laughs> I wanted to learn more. And so I went, I went directly to Linda and, and started to learn. And but the, one of the many struggles I always had with the teamwork was how do you explain it? You know, you'd say, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going off to, to teach some teamwork. And people would say, what? <laughs> what is that? You think, well, how long do you have? How long do you have? Linda could describe it, but Linda, you know, and, and even when Linda described it, there was this, this sort of mystical element to it. And she'd talk about awakening the cells and communicating with the cells. And, you know, it's like, okay, but how do you just, you know, how, how do you, does that make sense? How do you connect to people? And one of the things that I really loved about uh, clicker training was it was so easy to describe, basically. You know, you say, well, clicker training, we, we use positive reinforcement and we use a marker signal. And if your animal does something you like, you click and you reinforce it. You give him, you know, you, you provide access to an activity that that individual enjoys. That's playing with a toy, eating, you know, and it made sense. It was easy to describe. Now, clearly, there's a lot more to clicker training than that, or it wouldn't have taken me, you know, how many books have I written and all these podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. But the basic idea could be stripped down to a very simple sentence, an elevator speech. Not so with the, with the teamwork. But these were, these were definitely not only early influences in my development, as uh, a rider, but they were also major influences on the horse community, and Linda in particular, because I remember helping Linda at a conference, at a, uh, at a seminar she was giving at the University of Wisconsin, and in the audience, there were veterinarians, there were veterinary students, there were horse owners, there were trainers, it was a big audience. And one of the horses that Linda worked was this big, rangy, raw-boned, chestnut thoroughbred, you know, 
probably about 16.3. And his name was Perfect. And Linda brought him into the arena. I've got all of these people. It's one of those circular uh, arenas with the seating going up all around all the sides. And there, so there are people watching uh, all the way around this arena. And Linda did began with the body exploration. So she took her hands and she went down his top line, checking for areas of reactivity. And as she touched his back, perfect, all but dropped to his knees. He was in so much pain. And you heard this gasp go up from the audience as you saw this horse buckle under Linda's fingertips. It was very dramatic. Linda was helping them to see how much pain this particular horse was in. That same year, there was an article that was written for one of the major horse magazines published in this country. And it was written by a vet. And he stated that horses do not experience back pain. Think about that for a moment. Horses do not experience back pain. That was a common, common belief of that time. That we were just, it's like we had such massive blinders on that we couldn't see what was in front of our eyes. That these horses that were exploding with riders because they were in so much pain because their saddles didn't fit and they were being ridden with all this make it happen force and the horses just couldn't take it and were bucking and they weren't people didn't say oh poor horse he's in pain they were saying bad horse stubborn horse he's testing us and these were the horses that ended up on you know, the trailer heading off to the dealer's yard and off to, you know, that whole spiral down until you're in the kill pens. So this was, this was a reality in the horse world at that time. And it has changed so, so, so dramatically. Of course horses experience back pain and, and all kinds of other pain. You know, and we're, we're not in denial. We've, we're taking the blinders off. And it was people like Sally Swift and, and Linda Tellington Jones who questioned things, who didn't just accept, well, this is the way you do it. This is the way it's done. This is where you put the saddle. If the saddle slips back, get a breast collar and hold the saddle in place. You know, this is where you put your foot. This, put your heel down. This is how it's done. And if your horse doesn't stop when you pull back, get a stronger bit. You know, all of those things. There were people like Linda and Sally who began to really question and who said, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Sally with the influence that she had from the Alexander work, Linda with the influence that she had from the Feldenkrais work, they were, they were questioning and they were saying, you know, take your blind, take the blinders off. And I know that there are many people who would never, never 
think to look at the teamwork and what Linda was doing because it's just too, oh, it would feel too sort of new age and crystals and things that, that they just couldn't wrap their minds around. And yet it was because of Linda. And I mean, Linda in, in large part helped to open the door that God has all seen that actually horses do experience pain. And that it was because of Linda and others who were working at that time that now you may not be calling a team practitioner to your barn, but you go to any of the uh, major stable in, in your area and you'll find people are bringing in acupuncturists and chiropractors and and cranial sacral workers and myofascial release and you know all kinds of modalities that are helping their horses to be more comfortable and Linda helped to open that door so even if you would never use teamwork we have in part we have Linda to thank for all these other uh, ways of helping horses that have become really the norm in the horse world. So how does all of this, where is all of this taking me? And how is this going to take us to the Feldenkrais work? Hold on, don't go away. There's much more to come, but I thought a short break would be useful. So I'm going to use this break to let you know about the early bird registrations for a couple of conferences that I'm going to be presenting at in January of 2024. First, of course, there's the Clicker Expo Live. That's January 26th through 28th. Go to clickertraining.com to learn more about this online event. The registration is open and they have a number of specials for those of you who are registering now. And then for those of you who are in Scandinavia, I'll be presenting at the BHIS conference in January. So BHIS is a Swedish nonprofit organization whose purpose is to spread horse training that's based on positive reinforcement and to provide a community for people training their horses in this way. Instead of giving a formal webinar-style presentation. Friday evening, I'm going to be in conversation with the organizers. So it's going to be much more like a podcast than a webinar. We're going to have a conversation that's going to have range widely over the use of positive reinforcement, loopy training, constructional training, um, uh, many of the things that we talk about here in the podcast. We'll be talking about my new book, Modern Horse Training, and really wherever the questions and, and discussions take us. So that's going to be Friday, January 5th, and the conference itself is January 5 through 7. Dr. Susan Friedman is going to be another of the presenters at this conference. So especially for those of you in Scandinavia, this will be a great way to start the new year. The early bird registration is now open, so if you're thinking of attending, this would be a good time to sign up. Look up the BHIS conference online to learn more. Okay, that's enough of a break. Back to the podcast. So I was 
studying with Linda and she was showing us different bodywork techniques that you can use with the horses. And one of the ways of, of, of learning this and experiencing it was to feel the different ways of using your hands, to feel it on your own body. So Linda was standing behind me and she did this one, it was the, this one particular way of using the side of your hand, the heel of your hand, to lift up on muscle, to hold, and then to slowly, softly release. And so she did it one way, and it felt okay, it was all right. And then she did it another way, and it just felt completely, completely different. And I sort of looked behind me and I said, you know, what did you do? What was different? And she said, well, in the second way, I breathed up through my feet. Now that to me was an astounding statement because on many levels, because I'm a biologist and I know that you don't breathe with your feet. No, you breathe with your, your, your lungs and you breathe, you know, your ribs are part of that, but not your feet. And, and the other piece of that was that growing up, I always had hay fever. And so for most of the year, I would be completely stuffed up and breathing would be a chore. You know, my, my breath got stuck somewhere uh, around my collarbones. It didn't go, you know, the thought of breathing into my lungs would have been a luxury, never mind breathing into my feet. And it, it just, I just couldn't relate to it because I was, I would been, I had been so stuffed up. But it meant something to Linda. So when she said, well, I breathed up through my feet, I knew that was a significant statement for Linda. And I wanted to know what that meant. So I went in search of how do I, how do I come to understand what breathing up through your feet means? And that took me on quite a journey. And one of the places that it took me was to one of my clients. She was an Alexander practitioner. She had also studied the Feldenkrais work, but she had not gone as far as to become a Feldenkrais practitioner. She had studied some other modalities. She was just a wonderful learner. And we did trades. She worked with me and shared her work with me, and I worked with her horse and shared what I was learning to help her horse. And that began just a wonderful, wonderful exchange and a real in-depth understanding of how important it is to work explorations, how just how dramatically they can change the habitual use that you have. And, and another aspect of all of this that was of real interest to me was structure. So when you ride, if you, if you have a horse that pulls, say, that pulls suddenly on the reins, if you do not have good structural balance, you can be pulled forward right out of the saddle. Or you may need to get really tight and, and use muscle to keep from being pulled forward. But if you're aligned in your bones, that horse can pull 
and you can stabilize and you don't have to get tight. You don't have to get stronger, but the horse will not be able to pull you forward out of the saddle. And there are other ways in which on the ground when you're doing in-hand work to be grounded is really important so that you, you're not easily knocked over or knocked around. And that if your horse does pull on you abruptly, if you've got, say, the lead rope, that you're not adding fuel to the fire by becoming stronger, by holding on with more muscle. So I was really interested in structure. And Sally taught this in a number of ways. She taught what she referred to as the unbendable arm. You brought your arm straight out to the side and you just visualized and imagined that you were like a fire hose and the, the water was coming up through your feet and then out through your fingertips. And so if somebody came and pushed on your arm, they would not be able to push your arm down. And when you achieve the unbendable arm, it really is wild how you can just stand there, very relaxed, fingers sort of dripping down, and you're not holding your hand with a lot of tension. Your arm is really relaxed, and somebody is just pushing with all their might, trying to push your arm down to your side, and it's going nowhere. Now, you can do this through the visualizations, you know, imagining that you bring your arm out like it's a fire hose, or you can understand that this is really what we're really talking about, are bone rotations, and that when you bring your arm up without a bone rotation, a person can push your arm down. When you bring it up with a bone rotation, you can achieve the unbendable arm. So I was looking for structure. And with the clients that I was working with at that time, we were exploring this in great depth and, and having a wonderful time. And one of the places that we looked was to Tai Chi and to the martial arts. And so a client of mine and I took some Tai Chi lessons, and that was really fascinating. The instructor, he was, he was very beautiful to watch. When he did the Tai Chi forms, there was a lovely flow to them. It was very dramatic. He was very, very interesting to watch. He was Chinese. He had grown up. He had, was born in China. He had been trained in China in both the martial arts and uh, gymnastics. And then he came to the United States and he ended up in our area. And we took some uh, lessons from him. And when we did the push hands, where you've got you and your partner are, are matched and you are one, you're each trying to unbalance and push the other person off their feet. And when we did that with him, each of us could knock him over. We could knock him off of his feet. And he thought this was, you could just see, oh, this was, it was so puzzling for him and so frustrating and annoying because here we were, Americans, female, and we could, we could knock him off his feet. And what we concluded was that he had all the outer trappings of the Tai Chi. And because he had this gymnastic background, he could look very, you know, elegant as he was doing them. He was very flexible. He had, you know, many things that, that we lacked. But 
He didn't have the inner structure that gave him that core balance and stability, which is what I was after. So where is this taking us? So this is taking us to, you know, some of the background of how the body work, the Feldenkrais work, the Alexander work, all got woven together for me. And, and my interest just went deeper and deeper. And the more I explored it, the more value I saw. So uh, one of the exercises that Linda used at one of the clinics, and she did it once, was what's referred to as the four points on the bottom of your feet, where you just roll around from your inside heel to your outside heel to your outside toe to your inside toe. You're rolling around the four points on the bottom of your feet. And we did that once in a clinic. And I loved it and just grabbed hold of it. I think for Linda, it was one of scores of awareness explorations that she could have pulled out of the Feldenkrais work. For me, it became a really foundational piece. And I incorporated it into, when I started looking at some of the warm-up exercises for Tai Chi, and I wove that together with the four points on the bottom of your feet and developed this core of awareness explorations that were really beneficial for me in developing my riding. And when I used them on a regular basis, my horses would say, oh, we like what you're doing. And I would just have really, really glorious rides. And when I got a little bit uh, you know, off the track and wasn't using them as regularly, I could definitely feel the lack of them when I uh, was working the horses. So then when I was fixing my morning cup of tea, I'd be rolling around the four points on the bottom of my feet and exploring some of these other things. So the body awareness is really important. And it's been central to my work. When I first started teaching, it was already part of how I taught. So fast forward a few years, I'm now giving clicker training clinics. And one of the hosts was Cindy Martin, who started in California. And then when she moved out to Arkansas, we just relocated the clinics to her farm there. And one of the people who came to the clinics was Anita Snay, who's not a horse person, but she read an article that was in the, the local Arkansas paper that was describing the clinics, was describing some of my work and the interest in the Feldenkrais work and felt Anita's a Feldenkrais practitioner, so her ears went up and she started atten attending the clinics. And then I invited her to share some of the ATM lessons and we just became really good friends. And when we went into the COVID shutdowns, Anita shifted onto the Zoom platform and we continued to have access to her work through the lockdown. Through the So twice a month, Anita does an ATM, an awareness through movement lesson with us. And so, in these in these podcasts, if you're a regular listener, you've heard me refer many times to the, the importance of the body awareness. And at first, when when Dominique first started encountering my work, and we did clinics at the Cavalier Retirement Farm together, and when we said, "Okay, now we're going to do have 
take some time to do some of these awareness explorations. Dominique just was like, oh, okay, this again. You know, eye-rolling, not interested. But as we've been moving forward and she's been working with her horses and exploring the work and all of these conversations has really made her more curious about them and more open to the possibilities. So we've done a podcast before with Anita. We decided to do another podcast with Anita. Now, Anita, uh, twice a month, she does an awareness through movement lesson in ATM and it's done via Zoom. So we had gotten together. We had our normal Monday night session. Anita emailed me afterwards and said, you know, do you think this, this session would be a good one for the podcast? And I emailed her back and said, I think it might be a little too hard for people who are new to it. So we, okay, that that's fine. So then the next meeting, the ATM that Anita presented was, I thought, you know, this would be a really good one to share on the podcast. And so we had a conversation about it. And one of the things that we talked about was how do we talk about the Feldenkrais work in a way that's meaningful? How do we talk about it so that people become interested in it and understand what it is? So what I've been doing here is giving you sort of a historical, how did we ever stumble across it in the horse world? But that doesn't really tell you what it is and what it does. And Moshe Feldenkrais, he was so inventive and so creative. And how do you talk about it? And so we, Anita and I had this conversation one evening over Zoom in terms of what do you say about it? And, and Anita was asking me, you know, what, what is it that you value? Why do you value it? And one of the things that I talked about with Anita was, you know, I'm left-handed and I live in a right-handed world. And for those of you who are right-handed, it's hard to appreciate how much of the structure of our world is designed for right-handed people. You know, who would have thought that a faucet of all things, you know, a sink faucet would be right-handed, but they are. I like to knit. But when I learned to knit, I was taught by a right-handed person. And there are all kinds of places like that, you know, when you think about how you hold a softball bat. It was this taught by a right-handed person. So what begins to happen is your nervous system gets a little scrambled, quite frankly. And so I talked about one of the values of the Feldenkrais work was it helped to unscramble my nervous system helped to sort all of that out. And when I look at the video, so, you know, as a, as an instructor, you know, I produce DVDs and so on. I'm often demonstrating and person handling the horse. And when I watch myself moving with a horse, what I see is somebody who is moving gracefully. And that, Really, that's an extraordinary thing because I did not start out as a graceful, coordinated, balanced, naturally athletic individual. And yet there I am moving gracefully. 
And that comes from all of this attention to the body awareness. And it comes from working with the horses with this idea that what we are really doing is dancing with our horses. And I want to be a better dancer for my equine dance partner. And that's why, in part, I value this work. So this is very long-winded. I'm going to wrap it up here. And what I'm going to tell you is that next time we're going to come back and we're going to have another introduction. And this time it's going to be Anita talking about the Feldenkrais work. And the way she's going to talk about it evolved very much out of the conversation that we had. And she's going to look at it with this basic setting of that when you work with horses or any other animal or plant, you're setting out to communicate with an entirely different species. And to do that successfully, it's wise to try and imagine and enter into what their world is like. You know, what would it be like to have a hoof instead of a hand? How would the world be? How would you perceive the world? How would you interact with the world if you did not have a primate hand? And what we're doing is we're using this Feldenkrais work to disrupt our conviction of what the world is like. And Anita's going to explain what that means and how that relates to the Feldenkrais work and to the value that we have found in exploring it in great depth. And then she's going to share with us an ATM lesson, wonderful lesson. And then we're going to get back together again with Dominique and myself, and we're going to talk about that experience that we've had with the ATM lesson, relating it back to Anita's statement and then tying all these different threads together. So this week, I'm just giving you some of the, some sort of historical background, personal background, sort of how I encountered the Alexander work and the Feldenkrais work, how I stumbled across it, and, and many others have stumbled across it because of Linda and Sally. And then we're going to, next week, we're going to have Anita talk about the Feldenkrais work, and the week after that, we'll have the ATM lesson, and then we'll follow that up with a further discussion. So this is many parts to this conversation, and hopefully you will find it of value and of interest. So we'll end there for now. Before you head off, I'll just mention one resource that may be of interest to you. Twice a month, Anita Snay offers an Awareness Through Movement Feldenkrais lesson over Zoom. They're scheduled for Monday evenings at 7 p.m. Central Time. But don't worry if you can't make it to the live session. Anita records the sessions so you can use the ATM when it fits into your schedule. If you're interested in learning more, email me privately and I will connect you with Anita. And if you aren't sure what an ATM, an Awareness Through Movement lesson is and how it works and how it can be done over the internet, 
just wait. Anita will be sharing an ATM lesson in the upcoming episodes. And as always, do please remember, especially with the holidays coming up, that my new books are available both through my website and then also through Amazon. So if you're looking for a present for somebody who loves horses and wants to learn more about training, there's my new book, Modern Horse Training. And if you have children on your gift list, children that you're either reading stories to or uh, young readers who are starting to read independently, there's my new children's book, Teddy's to the Rescue. And again, both of those are available through my website and through Amazon. So do please take a look at those. And until next week, train well and have fun with your horses. Music